Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. So one way I thought about framing today's topics were to start with some first principles. And so uh, Katrina Jamison, who's one of my physician scientist colleagues, she and I often talk about a principle that I think is really important, which is that great science leads to great medicine. And I, and I think those really go together. But I think the other uh, organizing principle is that great science often leads to unknown and potentially important ethical and philosophical issues. And of course, that's the uh, underlying topic for today. And the, the focus is on uh, a structure called uh, a brain organoid. And for those of you who are not deeply embedded in these fields, let me just give you a working definition of an organoid, which is uh, a structure that can be formed by stem cells or progenitor cells from a particular tissue, or uh, in the case of so-called pluripotent stem cells, stem cells that can make uh, pretty much every fetal and adult tissue without, with the exception of placental tissues. Uh, these uh, kinds of stem cells can make clusters of cells that, in the case of adult or fetal stem cell-derived structures, mimic uh, functional aspects of the mature structure. And so uh, one example uh, uh, well-known are so-called intestinal organoids pioneered by Hans Klaver's lab, where intestinal stem cells can initiate the formation of a cluster of intestine-like structures that are functionally and by uh, certain kinds of genetic criteria very similar to mature intestine. Similarly, Melissa Little, in the past few years, and uh, folks who've built off her work, has developed so-called kidney organoids, a step on the way to, we hope, making replacement kidney tissue as the technology becomes more sophisticated. And at the moment, at least, I don't think there's much in the way of ethical controversy uh, brewing with intestinal or kidney or cardiac or, you know, various internal kinds of organoids, because other than perhaps access issues uh, in, in clinical medicine, they're pretty straightforward to think about. Now, there are two big exceptions to the simple, let's make it, it'll be useful, and we don't have to worry too much about uh, controversy. Uh, and the ones in question, or actually three that I realized this morning, would be so-called gastroloids, placentoids, and the subject of today's meeting, brain organoids. So just as a quick refresher, gastroloids are derived from so-called embryonic stem cells or other pluripotent stem cells, and they're clusters of cells that mimic some of the early signaling and cellular interactions of a human uh, advanced embryo. And so there are questions about, you know, are there any ethical borders there that shouldn't be crossed? Happily, as near as we can tell, gastroloids 
won't implant, even if somebody was crazy enough to attempt uh, the experiment on gastroloids or their derivatives. But brewing in the wings, I suspect, from Mana Parast and her collaborators here, are what I might call placentoids, that is, cells that can organize to form placental structures. And of course, you can see the, see the ethical hazard waiting for us if uh, you have placental-like structures that you can make in a dish and you have human embryo-like structures, you hope that somebody's not going to cross some line uh, that we might be uncomfortable with because of the notions of early human development and the origin of human uh, identity. But we're not quite there yet on that uh, crisis, but I think it's coming. Now, the one that's here in spades is the one that uh, Allison Motri and his uh, laboratory colleagues have developed in the past few years, and that's so-called brain organoids. And I'm sure, or I'm not sure, but I suspect most of you saw the New York Times coverage of some very interesting things that could be done with brain organoids, which I'll come back to momentarily. Uh, Allison himself, uh, who's our first speaker, is uh, really, in my experience, an extraordinary scientist. So today, this meeting is going to be focused on trying to understand both the scientific and ethical issues around the development of these brain organoids that Allison will tell you about. And I want to now turn the podium over to Allison uh, with gratitude for all he's done for our programs, as well as the amazing science he's brought back back home with him. So, uh, Allison. Thank you so much, Larry. That was uh, very generous of you. Um, and one thing that I should say is that uh, this conference, or, or the idea of involving other disciplines to discuss uh, achievements in science, I learned through Larry. I was just telling Pat that uh, when I was recruited here, uh, he included Pat Churchland on my list of faculty to meet and I said, why am I meeting with someone that studies like the brain from an ethical uh, perspective? And I, I found it fascinating. So you are my inspiration, and, and I think you inspire people here in this building. So thank you, Larry. Um, as Larry mentioned, there is something about the brain that makes this special. And I would like to, to start this talk by giving like an overview of the technology of brain organoids, um, but also tell you what, what's cooking inside this community uh, with uh, my group and our collaborators so you can see what is the potential of this technology. Um, but I'll step back and i tell you why I decided to study neuroscience uh, by um, making like a, a, a quick challenge for you. So this is our home, and I want you to think about what are the biggest challenges that humanity face. So just pause for a moment, think about one of the biggest challenges, and I'm sure it's one of those. So there are many things that are happening these days that are problematic. And now I have like a second, perhaps more difficult challenge. Pause for a moment. How are we going to solve this all? And I'll give you one answer. There is only one way to solve all these problems. It's to use the human brain. Without the human brain, we cannot solve any of those issues. And that's why I study neuroscience. So. Um, but there is a catch here. Someone might say, come on, I mean, we studied the human brain for a long time, um, and, and, and it's such a complex machine, we just admire that machine. The problem is, and um, this is uh, for those who are not in this field, 
more than 90% of the research in biomedical sciences is done in animal models or post-mortem tissues or in the adult brain. So the problem with that type of research is that we don't get to learn how the brain is formed. And uh, to me, that's the most fundamental steps on understanding the human brain. If you cannot create it, you do not understand. The problem with that is that the human brain is formed inside the uterus. It's not ethical to study a healthy human brain during embryonic development. So we have to rely on um, techniques that are non-invasive and, um, and, and sometimes post-mortem tissue were not like the best quality. And that's all what we know uh, from these early stages of developing uh, human brain. We don't know, for example, when the first neuron fire. To me, such a fundamental question. When the first neuron fire? We don't know. How the first microcircuitries form in the cortex? We don't know. So these are the kind of um, questions that we think this new uh, brain organoid tool might help us to understand. And I was trying to do like a historical perspective on uh, how these uh, uh, technologies start to arise. And uh, looking into my um, references, trying to figure out what would be like perhaps a landmark paper in this field. Uh, because we neuroscientists, we have been trying to grow uh, human cells uh, from, from different sources for a long time. Um, and I think this paper from the Sasai group in Japan is perhaps the one. So if you have to, to give credit to someone, I'll give it to Sasai. So he was the first one to actually use pluripotent cells uh, in a three-dimension configuration to show some kind of structure of the brain. This was in 2008. Um, throughout the paper, you don't see any mention uh, or, or name calling. They, they didn't call that a brain organoid, a cerebral organoid. They didn't say anything. They just described the process of creating this organized tissue that was so groundbreaking at the time because we only had 2D cultures, um, neurons growing in a monolayer. So the technology has advanced a lot. I will skip um, several uh, 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 major milestones because you can find those in several reviewers. Uh, and, uh, and just to summarize uh, some of the key important points uh, for, that you need to know about this technology. And I think one critical thing is the fact that there are two ways of doing brain organoids using stem cells. You can um, use non-guided uh, cues, meaning that you let the cells do whatever they want. So that's what we call a cerebral organoid. Uh, by doing that, there are different brain regions in the same species, in the same uh, piece, in the same organoid. Um, there are limitations with this technology. It's, it's short-term and then kind of uh, dissociated or, or, or dissolved. Uh, but you do have several brain tissues, several brain regions in the same unit. So this is uh, powerful. The other way of doing that, and that's how uh, everything started with Sasai, is to pattern the organoids or, or create a brain region-specific organoids. And uh, so you can uh, use uh, factors to drive them to the region of interest. And uh, more recent, people start to plug together these pieces to create uh, circuitries in a dish. And I'll mention this a little bit later. Um, all these technologies have uh, different purposes, and they have advantage and disadvantages as I, I listed some in here. Um, but what happens is that 
Um, these are what you can find in the media, the so-called uh, mini-brains. And I, I want you to avoid using this term from now on. The correct term would be a brain organoid, or a cortical organoid, or a different type of organoid. But a mini-brain, a dish, gives the impression that what we have is a fully formed brain inside the lab, and this is not true. I'll actually show you how they look like, and it's nothing like that. Also important is uh, to lay down the limitations. So these are mostly immature neurons. These organoids are not vascularized. We don't have all the cell types represented. It's just a miniaturized version of the tissue. And we don't even know if they are uh, translational, if what we're learning to these organoids can be applied to the human brain. Um, I'll give you one uh, recipe. Uh, this was developed by uh, Kleber, uh, Trujillo, and Priscilla Negrais in my lab, two postdocs, uh, who really optimize uh, the whole process here. And we start with single cells. These are pluripotent single cells that has been dissociated. We neuralize them by adding factors to the specific brain region you want. And here is the cortex. And then um, uh, through a series of um, uh, exchange of factors, you can induce the proliferation of these progenitor cells. You remove the, the, uh, the growth factors and they start to mature. You can actually keep these organoids for several years um, and they are still alive, and they can um, still show some activity. But uh, because there is no vascularization, the diffusion of nutrients inside these organoids are limited. Um, so the inside cells will eventually die uh, by necrosis. Um, so this is one of the limitations. So this is um, Isabel, uh, another postdoc in the lab, and she's handling a plate. This is a six-well plate, and I hope you can see that there's lots of white dots in there. Uh, each one of these white dots is a brain organoid. And my point with this video is to tell you that when we make these brain organoids, and we can make um, from embryonic cells, we can make from induced pluripotent cells, meaning I can reprogram cells from you, um, we, don't we don't end up with a single organoid. We have hundreds, if not thousands of them at the same time, and this has a value uh, for science because you can use for different experiments uh, a single batch of organoids. And if you cross-section one of these white balls, what you see is something that is remarkably similar to the embryonic human brain with a ventricular zone inside uh, surrounded by uh, the, the progenitor stem cells. And these cells will uh, migrate to the outer uh, part of the brain using these radioglia cells um, and form the cortical plate. As uh, these organoids mature, the cortical plate becomes more well-defined, um, and the, 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 the identity of the cells generated by the stem cells will change. I'll, I'll point in a minute. If we just break apart all these cells in one of these organoids, this is at uh, four months. Um, each dot is a cell. This is more or less the identity of the cells you have. Most of the neurons are glutamatergic excitatory neurons. These are the first type of neurons that appear in the human brain. Um, the population of progenitor cells continue to be there. Um, they transition to other types of neurons. Um, we start to see some inhibitory neurons. These are GABAergic neurons that will change uh, the way they work over time. So this is quite dynamic. And the glia cells, which, is, which start as a very discrete population, will uh, virtually take over the entire organoid. So the fact that at the cellular level, at the molecular level, they are very similar to the human brain allows us to use that as a tool. And um, I think Larry mentioned perhaps one of the most dramatic in impact of uh, this technology was on 
um, the causation for the Zika virus. This is um, a work done by Fernanda in, in, in Pinar in my lab by exposing the Zika virus to these brain organoids. What you see is that the Zika kills some of the progenitor cells, reducing that cortical plate, and that was the experiment that showed causation between the outbreak in Brazil and um, uh, uh, the candidate uh, for that, the Zika virus. But perhaps most importantly, we could use this technology to, in a year afterward, uh, find a drug that's called sofosbovir that not only blocks the viral replication, but can actually inhibit vertical transmission. So an infected mom expecting a baby, um, we did these experiments in, in mouse, if you treat with sofosbovir, the baby is born intact. There is no brain damage. So in case of an, a new outbreak, perhaps uh, this drug would be um, uh, a useful drug. It's already FDA approved for another uh, virus that we just repurposed. Um, so what I like about this example is that this was uh, two years. In two years, we could do that. So this, um, to me, is kind of um, uh, fast. I don't remember any other example in biology where we went from causation to uh, a treatment. Um, so what else can we do with brain organoids? We can study environmental factors, such as what uh, Larry pointed out, um, that might affect the development of the human brain in uterus. So uh, the uterus is not an incubator. The uterus is the environment for the embryo. And when we expose that uterus to different things, um, the neuroprogenitor cells that are migrating uh, at more or less 12,000 uh, replications per minute they will suffer because they have to migrate, to self-organize. And so even small uh, alterations in how these cells behave might have a huge impact later in life. So what we propose is to test things that are exposed to, uh, 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 to uh, females that are pregnant and create what we call a brain-safe label. So you can see if things are dangerous for the embryo or not. This is one of the things. There is another application for these brain organoids, and this is uh, a collaboration with uh, uh, Jeremy Rich here, and, and, and PNR is leading this collaboration in my lab. Um, what uh, they decided to do was to create um, a brain tumor model. What you have here, these are glioblastoma cells that uh, PNR seed on top of these organoids, and they start to grow as a tumor. But the cool part is... These glioblastomas are very resistant to drugs, and, and, and this technology allows us to screen for potential therapeutic approaches that can wipe it out, the tumor cells, and leave the brain organoids intact. So it's very promising, and you can do that in a personalized way if you have a patient that um, cannot respond to any drugs. So all of that is really uh, cool, and the science is um, progressing really fast. There are papers being published on this technology every week, basically. Um, but the biggest thing that was missing, um, and Larry alluded to that, was the fact that these organoids never actually show some activity, electrical activity. So what we decided to do with um, our organoids was to plate them on uh, what we call a multi-electrode array dish. These are electrodes that are printed in the bottom of uh, wells like this one, and we place the organoids on top. Um, and these organoids can be alive on top of these plates for several months, and we just record the activity as um, these electrodes can um, uh, detect um, passing by activity. You cannot claim that this is coming from a single cell, um, but it could be a cluster of cells. But nonetheless, you generate an activity map like that or raster plots uh, showing the uh, activity on each of this channel. 
So once Kleber uh, and Priscilla did that, I was uh, not super excited or expecting to have anything. And um, the reason is the following. Um, all the time when you have systems in vitro, the level of activity that you can get is really low. So this is a meta-analysis. Uh, I'm showing a couple of papers or studies where they use um, in vitro cells, even human neurons or primary rodent cells. And most of the time, the overall brain activity measured by mean firing rate in heart is below 5 hertz. What we want is to model something that is close to a mouse brain, around 18 hertz, or a primate brain, around 20 hertz. So our excuse for this low level of activity was always the fact that they don't mature enough because we, they don't have enough time to mature. Uh, the neurons will detach uh, when they are about two or three weeks, and uh, so you lose the cultures. With brain organoids, however, you can keep them uh, for several months, and uh, this is what... Uh, Another group collaborator did. Um, they uh, kept uh, these brain organoids alive for several months, and they measure with these multi-electrode arrays, and they also don't see that much activity. So I was not like super um, excited when they started these experiments. But the truth is, um, the data speaks by itself. So when we start recording with this protocol, we see that in, right in the beginning, uh, we, we have way more activity than was described before. But... Um, as we keep them alive, the level of activity almost exponentially starts to grow, and this is correlated with the number of excitatory uh, synapses that we have in these organoids, uh, reaching something similar to 20 hertz when they are about uh, 40, 40 weeks or 9 months of age. Because we have set that much activity, we start uh, asking ourselves if we should see other levels of activity, and these are the neural oscillations. Um, neural oscillations are these waves um, of different frequencies you can measure by placing electrodes uh, throughout your skull. Uh, the human brain has so much activity, you can actually detect uh, through the skull, and you see waves like those. And these brain waves are important because all functioning brain have brain waves. Um, and I, I believe um, some of the speakers will, will talk more about that. Um, so we team up with uh, uh, the Wojtek lab uh, from Cognitive Neurosciences here, and they show us that actually uh, if you record from these organoids, uh, starting at four months, we start seeing peaks of uh, uh, brain waves. Uh, by six months, these waves are very synchronized, similar to a very mature brain. Uh, but if you just wait enough, uh, by eight, ten months, the synchronization gets highly complex, suggesting that what we have is a network that is moving from a more static, state to a more flexible, uh, more complex state. And so this is what we expect um, uh, uh, of an evolving network. The obvious next question was, is this similar to the human brain? And, and here we have the biggest challenge. How can we measure the electrical activity of the human fetal brain since we don't have access to it? So we have to rely on uh, preterm uh, EEG recordings, and uh, these are electrodes placed on uh, preterm babies. Um, doctors do that um, to monitor uh, how healthy is the brain, if the brain there is no uh, seizure, um, and, um, and we have this data, it's, it's available. The interesting part from the preterm EEG is that they have a characteristic that um, it's very stereotype. Uh, it's uh, activity, uh, transient activities followed by a quiescent time uh, between another activity. This is what we call trace discontinue. 
the brain has activity followed by silent periods of time. As we grow older, the period between this activity uh, becomes shorter and shorter, and the adult brain looks like this. Um, so it's heavily um, uh, active with no silent period. So you can actually follow this trajectory with age. The brain organoid um, have uh, something similar to the trace discontinue with a periodic activity followed by this quiescent time. So we decided to, to compare the different ages, the different EEGs. And uh, who did that was uh, uh, Richard uh, Gao from the Voitech lab um, who said, okay, I'll, I'll create a machine learning algorithm that will predict the age uh, based on EEG features. Uh, he trained the machine um, uh, using the data from the EEG. Uh, the machine gets really good. Um, if you present the EEG, it tells the age of the subject um, with 100% uh, efficiency. The machine has never seen any data coming from the brain organoid. Once we fully train the machine, um, we start feeding with the organoid data and ask, can uh, the machine predict uh, the age of these organoids? And the data is pretty remarkable. Um, a perfect uh, prediction would be here in this uh, red bar. Our data is in the, the black curve. Um, I hope you can appreciate that after 25 weeks, uh, the machine gets confused. It can no longer distinguish the data coming from the human brain or the brain organoid, uh, suggesting that they are uh, matching, or at least they are uh, having very similar features and um, more importantly, these uh, features uh, get better as they age. And we can follow that up to 40 weeks or, or nine months. Um, we don't have a good prediction before 25 weeks just because we couldn't train the machine with data. The human brain, um, uh, we don't have that many data. The human brain would probably not survive um, uh, if it's born uh, that earlier. So, the biggest question, and in, 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 uh, that's why this, um, uh, this conference, or, or, uh, it, it's so important, is the fact that, well, I mean, we never expected that. And uh, these are organoids. I told you, these are not brains in a dish. How come we are seeing this neuroactivity? So the truth is we are getting a level of complexity that's getting closer to the real brain. And um, so we, uh, we should uh, be discussing the potential of this technology. So now that we have these uh, brain waves, things that we are doing, um, and I'll, I'll give you like a couple of examples of how we can uh, uh, extract more information from this technology. Uh, this is our collaboration with the EO Goldstein Lab and others here at the consortium where we are creating a, a platform uh, where we generate uh, several genetic variants related to autism. And we are creating these brain organoids uh, to understand um, uh, the impact of each one of these genetic variants, but also to understand uh, if we can use them uh, to respond or revert some of phenotypes using gene therapy or uh, pharmacological treatments. So this is a, a potential, um, from, from this work, a potential treatment for these different diseases um, might arise. So this is quite um, important work. The other thing that we want to do is to mature these organoids a little bit more. I told you that when they reach about nine months, they kind of a plateau in the activity, and we wonder if this is because we are missing input and output. So what if we start giving them some kind of input and output? And um, so this is uh, our collaboration with Carl Walling here in ophthalmology, where we are trying to generate uh, a mini retina here in, in green uh, that touches um, a mini thalamus. 
and from this mini thalamus, it will touch the cortex. So we are creating a visual uh, uh, circuitries, and perhaps uh, this kind of stimulation will lead um, to a more regionalization of the cortex, will create uh, perhaps a visual cortex. Can they respond to light? Um, so this is one way that we are using to mature even further uh, these uh, oscillatory waves in these organoids. Uh, others have uh, proposed different experiments. Uh, this is uh, uh, an experiment uh, from the Gage Lab where they just transplant some of these organoids inside the mouse brain, and they show that not only they can have some vascularization, but also uh, improves maturation. Um, but you don't have to be worried uh, by placing human cells inside the mouse brain. You are not humanizing the animal. So we know uh, for a quite a while now that even a mouse brain with more than 50% of human cells behaves like a mouse brain. So we should, um, um, uh, I don't think we should worry about uh, this kind of experiment. It's been going on for science for a long time. And um, it doesn't affect the survival of the animal. So you can do that in a... Uh, uh, this kind of surgery in a very reliable way, so there is no um, big consequence for the animal. This kind of work um, inspires us to think about what if um, we embody these organoids using different platforms, platforms that we can actually uh, control all the parameters. So this is um, something that um, we are doing uh, in, uh, in continuous collaboration with the Wojtek lab, is this idea of... Um, creating a robotic platform uh, where we can use these uh, brain organoids uh, to feed information um, into robots like this one. So what you are seeing here is a robot walking using electrical stimulation coming from these organoids. Just to be clear, these organoids are inside the incubator and they have no idea what they're doing. We are just recording from them and passing through a computer and uh, the computer is telling the robot what to do. This was done by uh, Richard um, and Christopher here. So this is um, uh, the organoids inside uh, the incubator where you see uh, the electrodes in here. That's how we capture the activity and we feed the robot um, with this um, uh, electrical information. So you might ask why you are doing that. So we want to create uh, uh, systems that explore the environment and feed back information through the organoids. Um, you will see that we are already adding the sensory inputs uh, from the organoid, uh, from the robot. The robot now has through infrared eyes. As the infrared eyes uh, find obstacles, um, these are the eyes, the infrared eyes. As they find obstacles or walls, uh, the idea is to stimulate back the organoids. Networks will rearrange, and the computer will give a second uh, instruction to the robot, such as stop or walk back. This is um, um, ongoing studies. Um, we hope to have more uh, updates by the end of the year. So um, another thing that we can do with these organoids is uh, to study human brain evolution. Human brain evolution is important because we can... Uh, understand what are the selective pressures that makes the human brain more complex. Uh, the complexity of the human brain is a trade-off with evolution. That's why we have more um, uh, genetic mental uh, problems now because of such a complexity. Um, and uh, we did that um, by using other primates such as chimpanzees, bonobos, 
But we always wanted to compare with our extinct relatives, such as the Neanderthals. But there is a catch here. There is no Neanderthal cells. Uh, the only thing that we have are uh, fossilized um, bones from these Neanderthals. So we cannot reprogram the cells to create organoids. So instead, we turn into genomics, where we align the genome of Neanderthals with modern humans, and we ask a very simple questions. What are the genetic variants that are present only in modern humans, but not in Neanderthals? These might be the cues to make our brains um, different uh, from them. And we are starting um, on, uh, uh, on, on creating uh, new ways to, to, to study that by Neanderthalizing modern human organoids using CRISPRs. So we have um, already like some data on that. Um, and right now in the lab, Kleber has tons of these Neanderthalized organoids carrying ancestral extinct genetic variants. And to our surprise, some of these variants are quite important and make the development of these organoids um, in a very different way, quite, quite unexpected, um, considering that we are altering a single base pair. So if I can use... Um, CRISPRs and, and genome editing to look into the past, perhaps we can look into the future. And uh, ideas uh, for that, it is really to look for regions, for example, in the human genome that are highly polymorphic or under pressure to create uh, new ways uh, for the brains to form, perhaps brains with uh, more synapses, perhaps brains that are resistant to uh, degeneration. So things like that. Was this kind of experiment that uh, led us to consider microgravity? We send uh, some of these uh, brain organoids uh, to develop into microgravity. Um, this was an inspiration from the NASA Twins experiments. Um, if you don't know, the summary is that one of the brothers is, spent about a year inside the International Space Station, came back with lots of physiological alterations. So microgravity do affect uh, the physiology of the human body, which is not a surprise. We never evolved uh, to live in microgravity. But one thing that I worry about is uh, the cognitive decline uh, and potential um, uh, dementia for that. So this is uh, one thing that uh, we plan to study uh, with these organoids. So we had to um, use this kind of uh, machines uh, to keep them uh, in an autonomous fashion inside uh, the uh, space station. The astronauts just have to plug it in. And once it plugs, we have uh, immediately access uh, to uh, what's inside those tubes. And I hope you can see these are brain organoids uh, developing under microgravity. So you can actually um, see how they develop. And uh, one interesting aspect here is that they do have this very nice spherical shape, suggesting that perhaps the progenitor cells uh, inside of these organoids will behave in a different way um, in this uh, very unique environment. The other thing that we learned from the uh, NASA Twins experiments is the fact that um, space ages you. And we wonder if you can take advantage of this aging system uh, to create uh, models for neurodegeneration, for example, to accelerate aging uh, on these brain organoids so we can study how neurodegeneration happens, um, perhaps applications for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or other diseases that takes uh, late onset and would be hard to model here on Earth. The machines uh, that we create can also be used uh, to create brain farms, and there are several companies now with this idea. Perhaps uh, we could uh, scale up the technology for brain organoids for drug discovery. So this is something very attractive for uh, pharma now. 
Um, so I'll, I'll stop here. I'll invite you to check uh, more details uh, using this um, nice platform. Uh, this is the Stem Cell Channel by UCTV. There are several episodes uh, where we describe some of these experiments that I just told you. Um, these are nicely uh, well done videos, uh, very uh, clear on, on, on the scientific ex explanation. So um, check it out. Um, just to acknowledge all the members of my lab, I believe I mentioned uh, some of them uh, related to the work on, on brain organoids, uh, uh, funding agencies. Uh, I have to disclosure that I'm also co-founder of Tismo, another company that uh, plans to use these brain organoids uh, for drug discovery for autism, and all the families and subjects um, that are recruited from my research. Thank you.